Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, well, to be honest, it's a bit of a quiet week in MotoGP. But uh, there's always something to talk about. There's definitely always something for Keith to talk about. Um, but remember, in the meantime, if you want to send uh, any questions in, you have been doing them. Keep them coming. Voice note us or the old-fashioned way as well. Just uh, uh, write them down. Uh, podcast at crash.net is the email address. Let us know. If it's a voice note, keep it to 30 seconds-ish, uh, and we'll get you on the show. Uh, right. The recording date is Tuesday, the 21st of February. I'm Harry Benjamin with Pete McLaren, Crash's Motor GP editor, and, of course, former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Uh, now, we thought first up we'd have a little discussion. It's been propping up in the news the last week or so. Riders are getting a little bit antsy about um, the fact that maybe they're not getting the, the full benefits of uh, that come along with the normal GP races as they are with sprint races because it seems like there aren't any good bonuses coming the riders way uh, there's talk about maybe they're going to implement them Keith what do you make of this is it, it's obviously a bit contentious but do you think they they do deserve bonuses if they win a sprint race I know it's technically not a Grand Prix win but you're still first out of everybody else yeah it's a situation that you get all the time isn't it when contracts aren't, aren't quite underlined in the way that you would want them as a rider you know bonuses is a, is a big thing when it comes to rider earnings you know, top three bonuses are, are a major thing. Now, you just said it. This is not a Grand Prix. It's a sprint race. It won't be written naturally into the contract. Some will, that's for sure, because some management and some contractual um, agreements are different from others, of course. And there'll be some managers that are sitting back thinking, ha, we thought about that a long time ago. Uh, and it was all covered. But there'll be others where there's a bloody great big, you drive a bus through the loophole. Contracts are always a situation where you, it's no good cheesing off the other party. You can have a contract, you can hold hands, you can shake hands on something, but if the contract doesn't suit the other party, I'm more, the riders, you know, whinging over not getting paid a bonus for, a, for whatever they finish in a sprint race is one thing. Um, but for me, you know, it's the mechanics, it's the technicians, it's the, it's the people behind the scenes that are being done over. You know, when, when we had the increased Grand Prix series, you know, it was increased by a couple of Grand Prix, you know, and they never got paid any more money. Most of the top GP mechanics never got any more money for that. Um, some would say they're on quite good money. Some are anyway. Um, but maybe this is the same situation again. You know, everyone's going to be working much harder. Might only be a sprint race, but they're all going to be every single element of the weekend now is going to be tough. Thursday, press day, all the action. You know, you're unpacking everything Tuesday, Wednesday, wherever you are. That's enough to knacker most people out. It's just getting the stuff uncrated and ready to go. Then you've got Thursday press day, getting everything 
revved up and ready to go. Friday, Saturday is intense. It was intense before. Now it's going to be unbelievably intense because you, although you've got the same amount of track time, you haven't really because you've now got a race at the end of that, you know, Saturday. And, and that makes the other sessions prior to that even more intense. So everybody's going to be thinking, crikey, we are working bloody hard here for the same cash. Riders, <laughs> this is going to sound strange coming from me. I have less sympathy with if they're if they're worried about the money and the bonuses they might get for the race. You know, most riders would race on a Saturday and, and are looking forward to it, I think. A sprint race is quite an exciting prospect. You are going to go flat out. There's not going to be any management in what you're doing. You're just going to go wring its neck and get on with it. Um, I think that's that's quite an exciting prospect for most young riders. Maybe a few older ones might think, yeah, we've got an extra race and, and da, da, da. But I'm looking forward to it, and I think they should be as well. But it's the people behind the scenes. I hope they're being remunerated um, according to the extra stress levels and the extra work levels that they're going to have to go through. I sound like a, a unionist now, don't I? Like someone, maybe I should join the railways. <laughs> you are right, Keith. It all comes down to the wording. We saw this a bit in the COVID season, didn't we? That, that really short season where some people, their contract said they were paid per event. And suddenly they weren't going to get anywhere near the amount of money they thought they were. Others were being paid per season. They were laughing. I mean, they were getting the same money as uh, as doing a full season. And it was, what, 14 rounds. So I would think, you know, we've gone a couple of years since then. I would think that, you know, the teams of the factories, actually, we also saw with the rider contracts where they have these options, these mysterious options, don't we, that, that expire. And I think it was instead of putting halfway through the year, they put a date as in July. Now, of course, because the season started later, a lot of the options almost expired before the first race had begun. So now most contracts, when they say they don't say a month, they say halfway through the season just to cover themselves for that kind of thing. So it's all sort of it's all sort of building up from from a few years ago, maybe. And uh, and the terminology, you know, is it a race? Does, does does their contract say they're paid per race or per Grand Prix? All of these things that maybe didn't matter beforehand suddenly are going to be quite significant. And uh, maybe riders are going to be looking at their manager and going, why did you do that? But of course, you know, and then the manager says, well, it's nothing to do with me. So there's going to be differences Some because some people are going to get paid. Some people aren't. And this is where you're going to see the friction, isn't it? So, uh, you know, let's. Uh... Well, I've, I've had I've had some pretty tricky contracts in the past, that's for sure. And I'm quite good at reading contracts for a, for a bloke who isn't very well educated. And it, you just need to be across all the little duck. You know, you almost need to think like a criminal. Where am I going to get away with something? Where are they going to get away with something? And it's literally that simple. You've got to look for that loophole that isn't there yet. Um, and most of my contracts have been really tricky in the past. And yeah, broadcast contracts are as bad as, as, as racing contracts. I've got to say that probably broadcast contracts are, are even more difficult because they're done with massive corporations who just have this kind of standard contract that goes across all of their so-called talent. Oh, wait, you, you get contracts. And... <laughs> Mine's just verbal. <laughs> Diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> It is, it is very, very tricky. And I mean, I did have this exact experience in the pandemic where, you know, the contract that I had was read differently by both parties, by each side of the, of the, of the divide. And we had to come to a, an agreement in the end over that. And it was quite a negotiation in the end. Um, of course, I thought I was right, but they had the big lawyers and the, and the corporate side of things with them that thought they were right in the end. You know, all came out good, but it was a big negotiation. And I can see that going on a little bit with this. But like I say, I'll come back to the moral issue. The moral issue is the one that 
that is is the most important here. Contracts are just contracts. These are bits of paper. They're things that you you deal with as a matter of course. And the, the only time you really need a contract is when it gets to litigation. Let's let's you know this is what was agreed and it's in writing. So you've got the structure of it. From a sporting perspective, it's no good forcing someone to do something they don't want to do. You might as well you know break the contract. It's in everybody's interest to to be to to let them go. I think a contract is only really for for the for the courts to decide if there is a big battle that ensues at some later stage. But from a moral perspective, like I say, if 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 you are working twice as hard, mind you, again, it could be argued, I suppose, these guys get paid twice as much as they perhaps should do. So if they're going to have to wait twice as hard later on, then that's fair enough as well. There's so many angles to it. Personally, I would say that it, nobody wants to get stuck in this. You know, the, the, the ultimate goal to be focused on is is to, to, to do the best job that they can possibly do. And we are going to have... I think a, a, a great season. Forgetting about all this mm. contractual, so we're only talking about it because we've got nothing much <laughs> to talk about. This don't week. give it away. But I mean, <laughs> Keith, you, you were back in the day. I know you were only paid, you know, what a couple of shillings per mile or whatever. But you know, did you have any any little bonus clauses? What were your little contract divots? Everybody has yeah. bonus clauses. It's how Even you're making money. If you're a, if you're a newbie, for instance, and you're coming in, and they they won't want to pay you a large amount of money to to just ride for them. That's that's when you're on the way up. So what you do, if you have confidence in yourself, is you really squeeze them for massive bonuses. So for a, for a win, for instance, we'll just say mm. 50 grand. If you take a win, 50,000 quid. Because A, they're betting on not having to pay it because you ain't going to win. B, if you do win, they're going to get 50 grand's worth of coverage out of it. So at the end of the day, bonuses are the thing that you make all your money out of as an up-and-coming racer. And the guys at the very top, if if you can't squeeze them for the, the multi-mega bucks deal that you want to squeeze them for, you get big bonuses into your contract, written into your contract. And that's why these guys are kicking off, because some of them won't be getting paid a baseline of anything like what they want. They rely on their bonuses. Now that they're racing for another one, they can see double bubble coming their way here. Suddenly, they got an opportunity to earn double the money over the weekend. Now, I, I would say to a man no rider gives a flying what's it about the amount of money they're earning at this stage in their career they're only out there to win races management though are there to look after them and tell them not to be so bloody stupid money counts and careers are short you know you could end up with an injury that, that precludes you from any further taking part you know in a minute if it goes badly so the fact is is management is there to make sure that you're covered as a, as a professional motorcycle racer even taxation, you know, I can go through that if you like as well. You can retire legitimately at 35 years old. HMRC, people, you know, taxation uh, organizations around the world recognize professional sportsmen that you, your career, your effective career comes to an end at a much earlier date than it would do if you were a normal working person. Um, that's speaking as an oldie. I don't know how it is right now, by the way. So don't ever take any text uh, <laughs> advice from Keith Ewan, please. Uh, but it used to be the fact, it used to be the fact that you could retire much earlier and draw bonuses, draw, draw not bonuses, draw your money um, much earlier in your life than you would do if you were a working, an ordinary working person that worked for, for a normal corporation. So there are so many elements to this that the, that the, that the management must get right. Um, that, that make a big difference to a, to a rider. I mean, I can go through riders that, that are much more famous than, than I that were really, really quick guys that have ended up having to dig holes in the street because they've managed their money so badly. Um, and, and, it, and it is a crying shame when you see a, 
you know, a near superstar um, financially in trouble. And there are, there are a lot of guys that have found themselves in trouble. And there are others that end up as major politicians in uh, France and places that um, we can go through that if you like as well. Harry, <laughs> are we so really digging? Are we really hour, scraping like. the bow? Let's talk about pensions next. Um, so, no. <laughs> Oh, I'll tell you what, that's a good subject. Surely. I hope you're tucking some away, young man. Nah, I don't need it. I'll work till I'm dead. Uh, Pete, go on, you're about to say something. Come I was on. just going to say that the one twist on this that I, that I have heard, I'd be interested to, because I think Keith could shed, shine light on this as well, is the insurance angle by doing extra races. Now, I don't know, do you just pay a bigger premium or would the insurance company go, hang on, we're, we're insuring you for 21 Grand Prix. You were doing a race. Not a, I, I have no idea, but that's the other the other angle on this that I've heard. I don't know what you think about that, maybe. There are so many implications to what's gone on that I think that not everyone has fully understood, Pete. And I think the insurance angle, I mean, particularly at the moment, I mean, insurance has gone through the sky everywhere. I mean, look at the debacle in Northern Ireland. You know, they, they've cancelled all of the races in Northern Ireland because the insurance premium has gone from a couple hundred grand to £450,000 or whatever it is. So the Northwest 200 and all those road races are all under threat at the moment. Now, they've gone even to a GoFundMe page at the moment to try and rescue the Northwest and the like. Um, I think there's something like £100,000 already been pledged by fans to, to try and keep that going. Slightly different kettle of fish. The Northwest 200 obviously is a free race for people to go to see for free. It only gets funded by people buying programmes. Um, but... I think the point, the underlying point is insurance rates have gone through the sky. I mean, my home insurance is, is has doubled this year compared with, with previous years. That's without making any claims. It's just, it is, we're, we're living in, a, in an evolving world at the moment. It's, it's, it's something where these things that, that we took for granted, like insurances, like bonuses, like all sorts of things. In the broadcast world, you know, I've noticed that the rates you know, for, for pay for people to work on broadcasts, um, this one excluded, is, 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 is half in some respects. There are lots of people that are going to be working for less money as we move into the future. Now, like I said just a moment ago, is that because we got paid too much in the first place? You know, I, I, again, I can give personal experience of this. You know, one firm I worked for was double what I worked for the next firm, which was double what I worked for the next firm. That's over the last 10 years. Um, that's the difference in, in the way that things have gone in just broadcasting. Everything is leveling out at the moment, and that comes out in so many different ways. Look how expensive it is to run teams. Mm. You know, Suzuki, we still, we still haven't got to the definitive bottom of why they dumped the thing after they just signed a new five-year contract. But my reckoning will be the world has changed direction. I think they're focusing probably more on... on electric bikes or whatever it might be or electric cars because suzuki obviously is a car company as well so they've decided that MotoGP gp was not the direction for them why would you spend millions and millions of yen on on MotoGP gp if that wasn't where you were aiming to go into the future i mean we may find that suzuki have pulled a proper flanker here with that by by getting ahead of the game whereas everyone else will have to now catch up with whatever developments they're heading for in in the future quite possibly i i this has all reminded me of um, one time. Sorry to to bring it to F one, 
but I once had a chat with a, a team principal who was an interim team principal, right? But he looked after the Lotus Renault team in 2013 when Kimi Raikkonen came back. So he came back with them in 2012, then was back then the second year, 2013. And he told me that Raikkonen's contract and Lotus had no money at all. Um, and he told me that Raikkonen's contract for every, he'd agreed for every point he scored in and the bonus bonus amount would be 50,000 euros for every point he scored first race comes around he wins the bloody race so already lotus are in 1.2 something million and you're like whoa but but the thing is raikkonen is is of the kind of guy that would bet on himself you know he really is the personality that would bet on himself and there are riders are like that riders are like that hugely so you know they bet on themselves okay i can't nail it down i always think that the bonus money is like a is the backup plan. You try and get the default money sorted out and then you hit them with the big, well, okay, I'll agree to it if you'll pay me 50 grand for a win, 25 grand for second place, five grand for, for third place or something like that. Rah, 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 rah. If you can be on points money, even yeah. better. You know, speedways, speedways points money. Everybody gets paid points money when you're racing in the in the elite league or whatever it might be, it's, it's points money. <laughs> and the wonderful thing about that is you finish second to your team, you get paid first. No, really? Yeah. You know that, yeah. If you're if you're if you're a, if it's a one a one two in a speedway meeting, so you don't interfere, so you're not racing against each other. You you second paid paid win. No way. Well, it used to be like that. I'm fairly sure it still is. I mean, not that I follow speedway as closely as I used to, but but it's a, it's a situation where it's a team sport. Remember, even though you're both in it, so you can just imagine, can't you? Two two road races. Yeah, well, I'm going to be on the same money finishing behind him. <laughs> That ain't going to happen. Not at all. <laughs> There's definitely have been a few cases. And I remember Tito Rabat in Moto2 where the teams have been caught out by that bonus clause, like you say, Keith, where a rider has, has really backed himself and the team's gone, he's not going to do that. And he's gone and had incredible success. So that most of the, I think, yeah, Tito Rabat's, uh, when his title year at, at Mark VDS, I think almost half the budget was going on his bonus money. I mean, he... <laughs> well... There's there's another story I can tell you. The first international, there you go. It was in black and white, Harry. <laughs> don't you start on me. The first international I ever won was the Northwest 200 on the roads of Northern Ireland. Um, I went there. I remember they signed me at Salzburg at the at the Grand Prix at Salzburg. They signed me up for this deal, and they put us on so much a lap and all the rest of it. A bit of start money. It was quite a complicated deal at the time for for the likes of my brain, anyway. And of course, it, there was lap money. So every time you got to the, the finish line, if you crossed it in front of the bloke next to you, you earned an extra thousand quid or whatever it was. It was quite good money. And uh, John Newbold, every John Newbold, bless him and God rest him. Um, every time I got to the line, he'd pit me by half a wheel and he grabbed the lap money. Every bloody lap, the, the six laps or whatever it was back in the time. The only good thing about it was, is, is I cottoned on by the end of the race and, and, I, and I won the, my first international race and took all the money in the end, the, the main money, which was to, to win across the line. But the bugger, I'm sure he came out with more money than I did in the end, just by pipping me every time across. The, maybe we all have lap money in MotoGP. <laughs> yeah. Back in back in the day. Uh, it, back, back in, in the, the day. day, eh? Solid tyres and two strokes. Have some <laughs> of black that. Black and white as well. Um <laughs> <laughs> be careful um let's well let's leave the sprint race chat uh, bonus chat there shall we clearly there's a lot of money flying around uh, not enough for the riders but hey ho um what have we got coming up uh tomorrow well we're recording this what on a tuesday aren't we so pete honda are doing their launch tomorrow um because we've already seen the bikes 
Oh, well, well, we've seen about five million from Honda, but are we? Is this just a, a livery again? Do we think, or what? Uh, yes, it is, and, and of course, with Honda because of the Repsol partnership, which started in 1995, it, it, it doesn't normally change much, does it? Let's be honest. So you could bet on it being orange. Um, <laughs> so, Shock. <laughs> so yes, this is, and, and actually, at, at, at the Sepang test, they were doing. I think on the day before the test started, they were doing all the photography for this launch. So, all we couldn't see it. Of course, it was in the pit garage, but uh, yeah. So they were getting everything ready then, um, as far as the photos, official photos, and all that kind of stuff. Even though they rode with the bikes in black, and okay, there was a bike from last year in the old colours. But yeah, you can expect a bit of a tweak livery. But I mean, they're not going to get it's, it's an, also an iconic livery now, isn't it? You see it, Repsol Honda, it rolls off the tongue. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, the success, you know, they, they had incredible success, all those champions, wasn't it, from Mick Doohan onwards. But uh, yeah, you know, in the last couple of years, it's all come apart with, with Mark's uh, arm injury. So uh, yeah, you know, it'll be... Well, the, the, the biggest thing for Repsol has already kicked off, hasn't it? Real Madrid with uh, Mark Marquez riding through uh, the, uh, the launch of his new docu-series yes. thingy. That's, that's out. I mean, that was a massive event. I mean, huge people turned out for it. And Madrid's a lovely city as well. I, I mean, I wouldn't have thought Madrid was the place for launching. But of course, when you're Repsol, the biggest city, the you know, culturally, it's a, it's a fantastic backdrop to, uh, to such a thing. But I was amazed at how many people yeah. turned out for that. Or maybe I wasn't. He's a hero, isn't he? Well, speaking of, um, we've had some questions come in. Uh, this is a voice question from Tarun. It's about Mark Marquez and those potential Ducati options he may have. So let's have a little listen to what Tarun's asking. Hello, Crash MotoGP team. I'm Tarun from Pune, India. My question is related to the speculation of Mark considering Ducati for next year. Ducati right now seems to be pretty comfortable with their factory rider duo and maybe they won't want to tinker with this combination just after one year of Peko and Anya being together. So the only other two seats possibly available with the latest factory bike could be at Pramac. Now uh, that brings me to my question which is if at Ducati, Pramac is the only realistic option for 2024 for Mark, would he swallow his pride and accept a Pramac seat? or wait for one more year just to get into the Reds. Just as a side reference, when Rossi went into the Ducati, he got into the Red team and was treated there as the leading rider. Thank you. What do we think? Thanks, Karun. Good question. And it's one that's um, in everybody's mind at the minute, isn't it? Uh, what will Mark do if Honda don't stump up with the bike this year? Which I don't think they're going to. So we'll, it's a very real question and a very real scenario come the end of the year. I don't know if it's a case of swallowing his pride. I think that Pram Afghan on factory bikes, the only difference is going to be that the full factory team is still the full factory team. It's got all the personnel and everybody behind it. And I think that's the, the hurdle more than any. It's not the fact that Pramac is playing second fiddle to the factory team, but of course, that's exactly what they're doing because <laughs> that's that's how it is. <laughs> you can't you can't have two full factory teams, otherwise they'd be painted red and um, and be doing the same thing as the as the main team. I'm hedging my bets here, but I would say he would be up for it. I would say that Mark Marquez would be up for it, providing he believes in himself, providing he believes that he is fit and still there or thereabouts. I mean, he's had another birthday since then, the poor old devil. He's, he's heading up there now age-wise. So, you know, it's a situation where 
it's a, it's amazing how as a as a motorbike racer how the how things change. You start off racing motorbikes. It's all you want to do. You just want to be on a motorbike every minute of every day in your garden, over the fence, in the fields, starting off as a kid. Then you get onto the, the mini bikes and you're all the, all the time, always, always, you get blisters on your hands, you're riding the bloody thing so much. Then you get to, like Mark did, come through the ranks. You know, Then you're at MotoGP and you're in your mid-20s and still a real weapon. Now, coming to 30s, it all becomes slightly different now. I, I always think there's a sweet spot in, in motorbike racing. I think it's around 28 years of age when your your talent and your maturity meet in a very, very, you know, weaponized position. It's a situation where you're smart enough, you've got all the tools, you've done it, you've seen it, you're ready for, again, 28 years old, I think is the, is the peak of everybody's, in my view, uh, on a racetrack. And after that, other things start to sneak in family, dogs, children, whatever it might be. Um, and suddenly it starts to interfere a little bit. And some people don't cope with that as well as others. Now, there are some drivers and riders who, who go on almost into eternity with, with their careers because they're able to. They are able to still focus fully on what they do. But some are affected by it. Some are, it just tapers them, you know, the, the tempers their, their determination, their whatever it is, it filters it slightly. Even they don't know it until after they retire. And then they look back and they think, do you know what? I just, I just felt a little bit different there. And they're not prepared to put it on the line as much as you need to at this kind of sport. So it'll be interesting to see how Mark Marquez develops in that area. It's psychological. It's a, it's a situation where your focus is not as focused. All of a sudden, you've got a broader look on you know, other things, what's going on in the world. You know, you, you, if you asked me when I was 20 what was going on in the world, I'd have said, well, my front wheel because that's about all I could see, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that as you get older, you, you, you do suddenly you're affected by other things that are going on around you. And that goes from personal relationships, your own family, you, you know, what's going on in the world, obviously at the moment, it's a disaster area. Um, and that for me will be the thing that will be, which will do Mark Marquez more than anything. I know that's getting away from the question that Karun put, but the point is, is that, it's what Mark Marquez is feeling in his head and his heart. He's a very smart man. He realizes exactly what's going on about himself and about everything else. And if he feels that staying with Honda is the right thing to do because switching to Ducati, he won't be able to motivate himself as much as he would need to to do that, then he won't change. But if he feels that he's still got it in him and he feels like he really, really still wants it, then, yeah, I can see him making a move to Ducati. It was a long answer for Karun. Sorry about that. You expect nothing less from Keith, yeah? Pete? <laughs> cheeky young man no it's interesting points you raise there Keith about you know the, the desire or the obsession isn't it at what point does that start to taper off I mean Mark is the only guy with more than one title in MotoGP on the grid at the moment isn't he and he's got six of them the other guys have only had one each he's in a you know completely different situation to the other guys and then as you say you bring, he's, he's getting on older now he's getting getting on a bit but that's really what surprised me with all these injuries was that he, you know he didn't throw the towel in did he he kept coming back and I think there is still that fire there but you, you have got to think what does second place mean to Mark Marquez nothing in my view absolutely nothing if he was to finish second in the world championship this year he, he would immediately forget it you know you might say oh a great achievement you know coming back from all these injuries I think for Mark that means nothing he's here to win the world championship and how long will he prepared, be prepared to be patient with Honda? That is the question, isn't it? It's you know he's, he's he seems to be getting a bit more 
uh, clear in his comments, doesn't he, about, well, you know, things like the biggest improvement over the winter, that was my arm. And, and things like that that make he's just putting the pressure there isn't he and saying look guys i need the bike now you know it's been years now uh ducati has the bike this is what we know and uh you know the contract situation was outlined there we did kind of see this didn't we where casey Stoner moved to repsol honda and they had to run three hondas for one year didn't they because they tried to sort of uh dovi would you mind moving to the satellite team and he did the talking about contracts earlier keith when <laughs> i think you'll find my contract says the factory team and so he held them to that and they had to have the three bikes. Now, the situation with the Ducati riders, presumably, well, we heard a lot, didn't we? All last year we were talking about Jorge Martin and, and Enea Bestianini. They're both signed to the factory and they will be placed at a team. So conceivably, they could sort of shuffle people. Now, again, it then comes into what Keith says as well, which is about you've got to keep the rider happy. You know, if Bastianini is going to go, there's absolutely no way I'm being moved back to the satellite team. Then you'd be it'd be a bit of a mistake. Do Ducati need Mark? That's the other question, isn't it? I mean, they've won the world championship now. Uh, you know, if Mark wins, people say it's Mark. It, it's you know, you know, there's there's a lot at stake there, and I I don't know. I just think honestly, I'm I'm going to disagree with Keith on this. With all respect, I I don't think he'd go to Pramac. But in my view, I think he would. He's Mark Marquez. He's the biggest guy in the sport. You're talking about him filling up the streets of Madrid. I just think he'd want to be in a factory team wherever he goes. Rossi wasn't prepared to go satellite, was he, till right at the end of his career? And I just think that that Mark, he, he wouldn't want to be the guy who 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 has the parts after those guys at the mm. factory team. But just my opinion. No, it's a good opinion. And I think, I think you're more right than I am, Pete. I've got to give you that. I mean, I think that his age, you know, a factory team was, is naturally where he would want to be. Would he risk going to a, a slightly less than factory team? It's a question of what Ducati behind the scenes would do with Pramac to, to get him to where he needed to be. You know, that pressure you talk about, if he won on a factory bike, it would be Mark Marquez winning. And if he lost on a factory bike, it would be the bike that was losing. That's a very good point. And coming into Pramac, if, if Mark was to come into Pramac, that gets rid of that scenario. Because if he comes into a, a, what seems to be a lesser team, then it kind of protects Ducati. But Ducati have still, uh, you know, they can give Pramac whatever they want to give Pramac. They can give Mark Marquez whatever they want to give Mark Marquez in Pramac, you know, even if it's extra personnel, whatever it is that makes it work. It's a really good question, Karun. And personally, I, I, would, be, I would be just ecstatic to see him come into a, an independent team uh, on a new bike. I mean, it's it would be just, it would, it would liven up 24. That's for sure. The other thing I would say is that if he wanted to move his team, bring his team with him, which he's always been with in MotoGP, it would be a lot easier to do it at Pramac, wouldn't it? Hmm. Well, we wait and see how the cards fall. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, now, we actually have had, an, if you've seen me glancing away, if you're watching on the videos, because it's because I'm finding the conversation boring, but also, um, <laughs> but also this is fresh... <laughs> Imagine how we feel. <laughs> but this is fresh off the press. Uh, it's just come in on the email. I have not listened to this, so not very good editorial uh, processing. <laughs> but let's see what it says, shall we? Let's have a listen. Okay. Hey, guys. My name's Zach from Manchester. And my question is, should factory teams, if not satellite team, get additional testing of some form? It seemed from the tests that Fabio and Yamaha as a whole were just overwhelmed with testing new parts in order to keep with the likes of Ducati and all the other manufacturers. Potentially, Suzuki have also left the sport for the reason of knowing that they can't bear the cost of running a satellite team, and in the long run, they just can't keep up with developing their bike like the other, like the other teams can, when the other teams have got four bikes or more, like Ducati with eight. So, should there be additional testing or additional allocation of tyres for these teams? Anyways, keep up with the great work and look forward to hearing for your take on this.
Top man. Thank you very much for that. It's a good one to throw in yep. there, Harry. Yep. Well done for spotting that. Um, do some more, more work earlier next time, <laughs> will you? So we've got some prep for it. But uh, the point being, I, I think the testing thing is is annoys me, as you know, because I've rattled on about this so often. In the, I understand what's being said there as far as the extra testing for some are concerned. But the trouble is when you've got eight bikes of any one particular manufacturer, they've got more data. They've got eight times the data. You know, whereas if you've got Yamahas and you've only got two Yamahas out there, you know, unless you're given eight times the amount of testing time um, for those bikes, maybe that's a situation. You get so many hours per manufacturer or something um, to try and level it all out. You're always going to have a, a, a disproportionate uh, amount of data that's coming in from a, a factory that's got eight bikes on the grid compared with one that's got two on the grid. And that takes a lot of manpower to manage and we've touched on that subject as well you know it's all very well having eight bikes but then you've got to eight times the size of the team to be able to get the kind of data away that you need to to, to disseminate over the course of, of of the period of time it's a very complex thing an aero don't even get me started on aero we've got you know all sorts of combinations each rider can have a different aero package compared with with his teammate you know it's it's a situation where or teammates in in the case of many so it, it's a complex issue. I still maintain that I think that the, the, the cutoff should be three or four Grand Prix in. That's when everything is set so that people can change stuff in those first four Grand Prix. Okay, there's no more testing because you know, there is not going to be any more testing. But if you want to try something at a Grand Prix in free practice one or whatever it might be, it's already actually that free practice one and two is already like a Grand Prix anyhow, just to get yourself through. Now that one and two are amalgamated to get you through to qualifying two, if that's where you're you're aiming to be. So, you know, qualifying has slightly changed again. Qualify, you know, you've got free practice one and two, which is effectively qualifying to get you through to qualifying two because everything has been shortened up because of the sprint race on a Saturday. This is a very complex area, um, but I still believe that it, the, 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 the cutoff, the point at which they say you can't change anything else, should be three or four Grand Prix in. Just my opinion, of which I have many. No, I, I agree with Keith on that one. I think it would, I think it would be a, a good move, and it's it's difficult for the teams like Yamaha. You know, bring the teams that are trying to catch up. You've got to make bigger changes, haven't you? Because it's that escalator. Everyone's moving up. You've got to try and jump forward. So you have to take bigger risks. Let's say more parts. So then you need more testing time, and, and it, it all compounds itself, doesn't it? Because if you go the wrong way, you then have to go back a bit. And at the same time, you've got people like Ducati, Aprilia, who are just tweaking around the edges on a, something they know works, a proven package. So it is really difficult for the guys like KTM, Honda, that, that have all these things to test. They're trying to, they're trying to not just improve at the same rate. They've got to try and catch up which means, as I say, more things to test, da-da-da. I, I, I don't know what the answer is completely. I've always actually felt that maybe the satellite teams should be given something extra, you know, because of all the disadvantages that, that Keith mentioned of not being in the official teams. Give them something, you know, something that some, like a concession, give them some kind of something mm. extra for those guys. I agree. At the moment, it's just done on manufacturer, isn't it? It, it? So it doesn't matter if you're satellite, you're on a year-old bike, or you're on the latest factory bike in the same team you're under the same rules. And I, I just think that maybe is an area they could sort of tweak as well. I wouldn't be surprised if that will happen in, in future. It is a situation where in the olden days, back in 500cc days, satellite teams, uh, sorry, privateer teams were paid more travel money than the factory teams. You know, double the amount of money they, they were paid to, to get to and from Grand Prix because they are the, the, the poor version. They didn't make a lot of money, didn't have a lot of sponsorship compared with the factory team. So, it's, it's, it's not been set 
quite as the precedent that we're, we're, we're considering. But I, th I think you're absolutely right. It could be a little bit more test time. You know, maybe the shakedown tests are allowed to run their full team, you know, the proper guys, you know, in the shakedown test. So they get more track time for the, for the main men, not just the test riders. I mean, Yamaha are at a disadvantage. And, and you can't blame Ducati for this. You know, Ducati have committed themselves hugely over a lot of years. And how long has it been since they won a world championship? It was Casey Stoner. You know, it, it, they have been committed for a long, long time, whereas Yamaha have sort of got away with, you know, a lot less commitment financially um, compared to Ducati and have, have won championships. You know, and now we've got, you know, Yamaha looking again with, a, with a, I won't say an old-fashioned motor, but a, a motor that's different from everybody else's pretty much and that, you know, have only got two riders. So it's a tough time for Yamaha, but they've kind of... They've kind of not been there or thereabouts, satellite team, you know, test team, you know, so on and so forth. They sort of, they make uh, some effort towards that side of things, but not really as much as you would think. Uh, it, for, for me, I think Yamaha are probably looking at the old budgets and, uh, and the like and thinking, crikey, the amount of money this is costing us. And we're not going in this direction again. It comes back to what I said about Suzuki. Suzuki jumped ship after having just signed a new five-year deal with, with Dorna for MotoGP and they jumped ship and paid the penalty to get out of it because obviously directionally somewhere that company is heading somewhere else. They're looking at something else in the future. Um, their model range on their, their road bikes are, are, are pretty, you know, old fashioned, if I might say that. Um, I love Suzuki's, but they're, they're looking fairly stale. Um, and perhaps that too is an ind indication of where they're heading for the future. They're just stocking up in their war chest or whatever they're going to be doing later down the road, maybe. Like I said, I said electric bikes. Oh, just ruins <laughs> me, just the thought of it. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, uh, it's a great question from Zach. So thank you very much, Zach, for sending that one in. Um, we've got loads to get through, which is great. Um, not voiced this one from Luke. Um, Luke from Yate, been following your podcast for a while now and really enjoying the content, especially during the off-season. Thank you very much, Luke. Uh, with the advancements of technology and aero coming in recent years, is there ever likely to be a cost cap implemented to stop bigger teams with bigger budgets gaining too much of an advantage? So similar to what we've just been speaking about. Uh, but then he also follows that up with, um, I've also got a question with regards to the te technology uh, with uh, regards to cameras on the bike and the rider. Are there any discussions to include helmet and visor cams for this season? Uh, what, well, well, there's two questions there. Which one do you want to go with first? Uh, visor cams and stuff like that. I mean, that's an ongoing... I mean, Dorna are cutting edge ahead of the game with, you know, people buy technology from Dorna, uh -huh. look at technology that Dorna are, are achieving. I mean, they've, they've come up with some brilliant innovations over the years. So, Alex yeah, Rins uh, had one, see. didn't he? Not too long ago, I seem to remember. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's other there's other developments going on at the moment. The, the safety front, Pete's you know particular platform. If you if you go back to the the, the rider indication of when there's incidents ahead and the like, you're going to see more heads up display. I think in 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 the helmet in the in the in the cockpit area of, of a bike. So I, I think there are there's a whole load of things, and they're not going to want to be tripping over those um, connectivity issues, of which there may be many. <laughs> A bit like when they upgraded the jumbo jets for a new um, a new video system on the jumbo jets, and they all melted in the seats. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't plug everything into a, an older system. You need to develop it in in uh, in, in degrees. And uh, I think that that I'm sure Dorna have got a whole load of things. I mean, just look at what you can do with your camera on your phone nowadays. It's just amazing. 
Bloody hell, we never even yeah. had mobile just phones stick, in my stick, day. Stick your iPhone <laughs> on your on your camera, and jobs are good. In I'd say, yeah. See, stick yeah. it in your head. <laughs> Done. <laughs> the, what was it? The shoulder cam, wasn't it? That was the one last year. That was year. it. Was that, yes. Yeah, that was. I think you're on your your thing about Harry. Yeah, that was on a few people. I, I assume that will be continuing. Yeah, I have no no knowledge of the cameras beyond that, but that's the one that stands out for me. That was um, last as as, season, right? Wasn't it? Or I seem to think yes, was it, it longer. During, yeah, last season. It was as far last as I season. Know. Okay. Yeah. Um, but not on everyone, obviously. It was a, a mm. different right. I think Banyai had one, didn't he? And things like that. It was interesting because on some of the guys that had it, it looked like they blanked over a bit of the dash mm. team. That, uh, they, they could you could see what was on their dash, so they were just covering that up. But um, uh, and the cost cap was the other part, wasn't it? I, I, that that sounds. I, I don't know anything about that. You you'll know that from Formula One, Harry. It sounds complicated to me, and I think the teams won't want. You know, I, I think it's easier to try and it, it is true, isn't it? Motorsport is an unfair thing. You put people out to race with completely different budgets. And uh, that was always the thing when Suzuki won the world championship, going back to Suzuki, because not only did they beat, you know, the other the other factories, they did it, most people believe, with far less resources. So it was almost, almost a, a double victory in that sense. But you never really know, do you, how much resources certain teams have over the others? And it, it obviously plays a big part, but it's trying to control it. I don't know. I think all these arguments that have happened in Formula One over what's being spent and everything else. I think it's easier just to try and limit, just to try and take away. Whenever I've spoken to the, the rule makers, if you like, what they want to do is limit the impact of money so that you can't just throw large amounts of money at something and you will just win the races. They mm. try and make it so it's diminishing returns. So you, you might spend one million and it'll make the bike a second a lap quicker. But if you spend another two million after that, it might only go about you know, two or three tenths a lap quicker. That's kind of what they're after is that it actually doesn't make sense for manufacturers to just pump money in because they're not going to see a return for it. Um, obviously, aerodynamics is an area where, you know, we don't know yet exactly if that's going to be this massive sinkhole of money or not, but we're already seeing it quite refined, <laughs> aren't we? I mean, we're seeing the wings get smaller even. The Ducati wings this year, I think Banyai's they, they look like they've got smaller again because they've realized, you know what, the bikes, it's not as maneuverable if you have those great big wings on. So we're seeing it's, it's, it's definitely a sinkhole. Thing. Yeah, but, it's definitely but a it's details now, isn't it? And I, and I think it's it's quite rapidly gone from this brand new thing to actually being quite established. And we're now on these these tiny refinements. And I'm not sure over a race distance, you know, the rider still makes the difference, I think. And uh you know, Mark could drag. Mark could drag. Well, he did. He dragged that bike around without any wings, didn't he, for two laps at Sepang? But um, you know, yeah, all these things count. It's it's how much they count. And I, I think that I think you can't buy a championship. I mean, Ducati didn't win because of the money. They won because of everything. You know, all of the design, all of the data that keeps on about all that kind of thing. Um, you know, it all played its part. But they didn't just open up a checkbook and say, "Give me the world championship." It's just not mm. possible. I think. Well, thank you for sending that in, Luke. In a similar vein, well, sort of, uh, Rick has sent this in from Tampa in Florida. Um, with the exception of Rossi retiring, uh, do you think that the cause for the drop in viewers in MotoGP is due to the direction it appears to be going with increasing electronic aids and aerodynamics? I have a theory, but that's just me. Interesting that, because Pete and I, before you um, joined us earlier on, Harry, were Thanks. talking yeah, about... I was late. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. Before your alarm usual. clock went off, Harry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These are my pyjamas. <laughs> was that we, were, we were talking about the, is this the year where World Superbike um, starts to eclipse in some marketplaces the popularity of MotoGP? Now, we've seen it in the past where, where in certain marketplaces, World Superbikes were above 
the then 500cc early days of MotoGP. Um, and World Superbikes at the moment, considering they're just bloody old production bikes, some would say, um, are doing a great job. It's a great series. It's going to be a fantastic year in World Superbike this year. British Superbikes is a fantastic series. Massive gates, massive people at, at trackside. It's a real event. Um, is MotoGP losing a bit of gloss? You know, I think some promoters have charged too much money to get in. Mugello, you know, last year was was crazy money or the year before. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but it's kind of a situation where MotoGP is the premier class. No doubt in my mind about that. It is, you know, prototype class, the very best on the very best bikes. But World Superbike is coming up at the moment in popularity. People only have so much time to watch sport and only have so much money to go and see sport. It's a very, very fine line. You know, not many people can afford both. You know, as soon as they're starting to look at what their favourites may be, I mean, if we did a poll on Crash, it would be quite interesting. You know, in each, you'd have to do it in each marketplace. MotoGP in this country might not score as high as maybe British Superbike because we've got a close affinity with British Superbike and it's on our own tracks here in the UK. But in, in, in other countries, that might be different, of course. So which is going to be the worldwide favourite in 2023? I think it's still going to be MotoGP by quite some margin. But World Superbike is on the march again now. And that gives Dorna a real dilemma because they own both. You know, like they're, they're both owned by the same, you know, promoter, by the same organiser, by the same uh, group. And if World Superbikes, maybe, maybe they'd be happy to see both. I mean, there was a time when it was looked at, you know, crushing World Superbike out of the marketplace just because it was, you know, the market wasn't able to sustain two big championships like that in motorbikes. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting year this year. Will it be World Superbikes, top of the tree? Or will it be MotoGP? I, I feel it will still be MotoGP, but watch out, guys. World Superbike is uh, is coming again in And what about Moto E? Could overtake them all, Keith? <laughs> Not if it lasts longer than seven laps. So, sorry. Sorry. I had to say. <laughs> Look, I tell you what, Moto E was a very, very clever, very shrewd way of making sure that Dorna kept control of that situation. Bernie Eccleston was an idiot and lost track of what happened when Moto, when their Formula E came about. Someone completely separate to the Formula One, you know, organisation, they let it go off to one side. And there's been quite a reasonably successful series now, Formula E, um, but it's not controlled by anybody to do with Formula One. Now, that wasn't a sharp move, was it, by Formula One, considering that they are invested in hybrid systems. So therefore, there is a bit of electricity in, into, a, into a Formula One car. So they could have really, if they'd been smart, like Dorna, have kept it in in house, which they didn't. I'm sure Liberty wouldn't have ever have made that mistake. But Bernie, being a little bit older and maybe a little bit more stuck in his ways, um, wasn't gonna wasn't gonna get involved with that. The same as he was with social media. Now that social media is allowed around the paddock in the Formula One, it's exploded. Formula One is in the best position it's been in for donkey's years. Um, but in MotoGP, Moto E was a shrewd move, keeping it. Yeah, you know, it's a World Cup, by the way. It's not a Grand Prix, so the the Moto E series is a World Cup. It's not even classed as a Grand Prix. Don't get us started on sprint races. Imagine the bonuses there. <laughs> if you could do all three. Um, but the point being is, Moto E is not really. I don't think it's showing off uh, electric motorcycles in the way that it should do. This year will be different, obviously, because Ducati have got it under its wing, and it's going to be a lighter motorbike, and it will be a a better 
you know, saleable product than perhaps uh, the Energica thing was uh, in recent years. Um, but MotoGP isn't committed to going electric. MotoGP is committed, committed to going sustainable fuel, which you know I'm a, a, a believer of. I just think that the, elect, the whole electric thing is, is, is a, a bit of smoke and mirrors. And it, the more people I know that have got electric cars and want to go anywhere, I've, I've got that anxiety of being able to get to where they're going to go and, and maybe being able to come back again without filling up or whatever it is because it's such a major problem we don't have the infrastructure for it we don't we don't have the power stations to keep it running if everybody was running bloody electric class cars at the moment you know your house would be going dark it's it's just not there yet and i don't believe it's a sustainable thing then you get into the minerals and the stuff that you need to make the batteries and how far they have to travel around the world to get here or get to the manufacturer and so on and so forth if you had a you know from from cradle to grave costing or or environmental edit What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, edit will do of the whole thing. Um, it's not that viable. It's not, you know, not from what I've the, the the information I've got. If you live in a city, electric cars, of course, are perfect. If you're a, if you're a person that that is cycling, walking with your children and all the rest of it, then yes, of course it works and it's the right way to go. But um, whether it is going to be the thing of the future, I'm a believer in hydrocarbons and so on and so forth for me and a sustainable future. <sighs> I'm have sorry, I, I should never have brought it up, should I? I can't, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> All I could think about was, we talked about this like two years ago and I still remember, or a year and a half ago. And I think mo- the, our Moto E podcast that we did is still one of the highest like amounts of listeners we've had. So clearly people love Moto E. And we're great to say that this show is brought to you by Moto E. And no, <laughs> not quite, not quite. I've... That yeah. Me fired, then. <laughs> um, I, I yeah. Let's let's do one one final question, shall we? Before we wrap things up, thank you for sending them all in. Uh, and this is from Serban from Romania. If Pete and Keith could pick from regulations across MotoGP history, what would be the perfect combination of rules for you and why? For example, Michelin twenty sixteen tires. Factory electronics, no ride height devices, nine uh, nine ninety cc engines or five hundreds. What would you go for? Great question, Serban. What a great, great question. question! I love that question. That's a I'll hard tell one. you what, <laughs> it's a very very difficult one. Um, unlimited tires, <laughs> yeah. whatever they might be. <laughs> yeah. From a rider from a rider perspective, you just want to bung a new one in every time you go out. So <laughs> unlimited tires would be quite cool. The thing is, we're in the best position rule-wise that we've ever been in when it, from the point of view of, of, of racing standards. I mean, again, you know, even if you go back to the relative distant past of good old Hewans racing, you know, if you were within five seconds of a, of a factory machine over a lap, you were doing quite well back in the day. You know, that's unacceptable. You know, you would have like one guy that could lap near enough all of the field by the end of a race back then. Now, is that is that the good old days? You see, I don't think it is. I think we, the good old days are now where we're talking about thousands of a second between each bike. You know, a second covers 24 bikes on a good test. You know, you think, crikey, we've never had it so good from a closeness. But of course, that then promotes a safety issue. We've seen it with Moto3 and Moto, particularly Moto3, but Moto2 and MotoGP. Everybody's so close. So, you know, when you get somebody tangled up, it's a big one. Um, and so 
the evolution of motorcycle racing is, is in its best position from where I'm stood. From a personal perspective, chuck as many tyres as you like, be allowed as much fuel as you, as you like, but then it, you'll end up, as soon as you do that, you'll end up with a disparity. If Ducatis were allowed a couple of litres, three litres more fuel, they could unleash that Desmosadici motor and you would find that it would suddenly add 10 mile an hour on everybody else again. You know, if you allowed, you know, Honda to keep their inertial platform and their ECU that they had previously, then electronically they were ahead of the game. They were ahead of what they're running now. And, and it tamed that Honda into a real weapon back in the day. So there are certain elements that if you allowed them to still be there, um, you know, you could go back different, you know, 800cc, which was a bit of a disaster right the way through to where we are now. You, you can change things, but if you fancied something personally, personally, you know, rider weights, would you would you have combined weights between bike and, and rider like they have in Moto3, Moto2? Personally, I think, yes, you should. Uh, there'll be a few people that are campaigning for that, and there'll be people like Danny Pedrosa who are absolutely campaigning against it. Because... <laughs> But then again, there are advantages for producer in that he can straight line it. He's always going to be the quickest because power to weight ratio, he's got an advantage. But then strength-wise, he doesn't have. And reach-wise, he doesn't have to, to get around the bike like you need to in some circumstances. So tiny elements of change uh, would, make a, would make a big difference. And I think Dorna and, and technical division have worked so hard to get this to where we are now. It would be a shame to muck it up by um, any opinion of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that is the thing, isn't it? It's so close. To, I mean, I'm, I'm looking back, I'm thinking, well, when is when was an era that was better than this that I've seen? And the only bid I would want to take, let's say, would be the way they used to smoke the tyres in those early years of MotoGP. <laughs> if you could... What did I just say? Just keep bunging tyres at it. it. Or, or something with the electronics or something that allows that kind of spectacular show, shall we say, if they could insert that into the bikes that they have today, I'd pretty much be happy. I'd also go along with the rider weight thing that Keith says, and also because of the fuel limit. I think when you with the fuel limit thing, if you're a heavier rider, you get punished twice, don't you? Um, you well, if, 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 if you did did away with the electronic side of things, then Casey Stoner would make a comeback because that was one of the main reasons why he didn't want to play anymore. He didn't like the interference that you'd got from from that. He, he, he took away from the purist riding style. Uh, most of these riders are going to be just as good with the, with the right hand as they are with the electronics. But um, who were we talking to the other day? Jake Dixon, when he said, when he rode that bike, you never felt the electronics interfering with it. You could just turn the thing on. I mean, that is almost eerily unnatural. You know, most most of the production bikes that you've got, they're all very good. Even road bikes are very good now when it comes to things like traction control. But you can feel them when they bang in. You know, if you've been in your bloody road car, I mean, they're about as, you know, it's horse and cart, you know, old-fashioned. It's almost medieval when you get to a traction control on a, on a normal road car. Um, but kind of like that they've evolved in such a way with a seamless gearbox and the kind of control that electronically they've got. It's magic almost. How, how it all works maybe you know maybe maybe they shouldn't have that you know maybe it should be more well, i don't think so i love a prototype series where stuff is yep. moving forward well great question though from Serban. it is a great, great question. question so thank you for sending that in let us know if you've uh, got any particular uh wants out of uh, what you would like to see let us know in the comments and uh and be good to see have a little bit of a debate i think though 
we'll leave it there guys we made it nearly 55 minutes not too shabby not too shabby make sure you are tuned in across the week to crash.net though for all the latest news and analysis uh, across the week and we shall be back with you next week get your questions in leave them in the comment section tweet instagram or facebook us search crash motor gp or the email is podcast at crash.net and you too could have your question or voice played out on the show uh that is it though leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and we shall see you next week but from myself harry benjamin from pete mclaren and from keith hewan bye-bye here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.